You are listening to Reach MD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Drug-eluting stents, a panacea or an Achilles heel? Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, your host, and with me today is Dr. Elizabeth Holper. Dr. Holper is the Associate Professor of Medicine and the Director of the Cardiac Catheterization Laboratory at Parkland Health and Hospital Systems at UT Southwestern. Dr. Holper is an interventional cardiologist and will help us today to try to understand the issues about drug-eluting stents. Coronary drug-eluting stents were considered a technological breakthrough, and the Food and Drug Administration gave them expediated review status, approving Cordis's serolimus-eluting cipher stent in 2003, and Boston Scientific's paclitaxel-eluting taxis stent in 2004. Cardiologists began using them uh, quite avidly, but now there's some controversies that are beginning to arise with these stents. So I would like to welcome Dr. Holper to the Clinician's Roundtable today. Thank you very much, Matt. Let's talk a little bit about what these stents are to begin with. What is a drug-eluting stent, and what makes that different from other stents that we've used before? The way these stents are, are different is that the two stents you mentioned, the Cypher stent and the Taxis stent, have been formulated to have a drug which rests on affixed to the stent, which is attached to the metallic basis of the stent by what's called a polymer or another substance which keeps that drug on the stent. And that drug will slowly elude over time into the coronary artery. And the drugs were designed to reduce the rate of tissue ingrowth in the stent after that stent has been placed that tissue ingrowth, or what we call neo-intimal hyperplasia, or clinically, which is called called restenosis or re-narrowing in the stent, has really been what has been the main problem, or what we call the Achilles heel of coronary stenting since the advent of coronary stents. So let's start first by talking about bare metal stents before the development of drug-eluting stents. How often did this restenosis or this hyperplasia occur and lead to repeat procedures? Well, the incidence, again, if we look at all comers on average, was about 15 to 20% of all patients who had a coronary intervention would have re-narrowing that would require another intervention. Now, the, the rates could be very variable, anywhere from 5% to 40%, depending on other clinical factors of the patient, such as patients with renal disease or diabetes or a stent that was placed in a very small coronary artery or a very long stent that was placed would have rates of restenosis that were on the higher end of that range. So did the drug-eluting stents reduce this restenosis significantly? Absolutely, and that's why that really led to, several years ago, a a great excitement in the interventional community because for the first time we had had a a phenomenon that, that, or a modality that would allow us to reduce rates of restenosis by upwards of 50%. Again, in, in patients that were in the clinical trials that were not our highest risk patients, but again, a reduction of restenosis of about 50%. So why is there a controversy then? This sounds like it was a definite advance uh, forward. It was. We were all incredibly enthusiastic because it's rare in medicine nowadays to find anything that can reduce an adverse event rate by 50%. So we were all excited and effort, and people were putting drug-eluting stents in what was been estimated of 80 to 85% of all patients undergoing coronary angiography in the United States. The issue came up about a year and a half ago now because people started looking more at rates of stent thrombosis beyond when patients were continuing their Plavix therapy after having the stent placed. 
And there were some initial reports in one clinical study as well as in several meta-analyses of a stent thrombosis rate that was slightly higher in the drug-eluting stents compared to the bare metal stents. And then in two meta-analyses, there was a comment of a slightly higher death and myocardial infarction rate in the patients who had drug-eluting stents as well. So this led to a, a large amount of concern on the part of the interventional community, on the part of the makers of these stents, and on the part of the FDA. I want to make sure we know exactly what we're talking about. You're, you're mentioning thrombosis of a stent. This is a different complication than restenosis of a stent. Can you just describe the time course of typical thrombosis and, and why this is occurring with these stents? Exactly. That's an excellent point to make. So when we talk about, we mentioned restenosis is re-narrowing or tissue ingrowth, neointimal hyperplasia, we call it, in the stent after it has been placed. With bare metal stents, that was that restenosis was really seen in the majority of patients in the first six months after that, six to nine months after that stent was placed. With a drug-eluting stent, similarly, we saw we see restenosis usually within the first nine to 12 months after the stent is placed. When we talk about stent thrombosis, that is actually a blood clot that develops within the stent and can cause complete occlusion of the artery, and that uh, has a, a different time course when we talk about bare metal stents versus drug-eluting stents. Historically, when we look at bare metal stents, the majority of stent thromboses almost entirely occurred within the first 48 hours, really, after that stent was placed and only a very small percentage would occur after that time frame. And even that, the vast majority was in the first 30 days. And we almost saw no stent thrombosis after 30 days. In drug-eluting stents, again, the majority of these cases are seen within the first 30 days, again, after the stent has been placed. However, what's different from the bare metal stents are that we are seeing a slightly higher rate compared to bare metal stents of stent thrombosis that are in what we call a very late time frame, meaning after 12 months and greater after that stent was, has been placed. You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Matt Sorrentino, and my guest is Dr. Elizabeth Holper, and we're talking about the controversy regarding drug-eluting stents and the risk for thrombosis. What I'd like to understand a little bit more is how this risk of thrombosis eventually goes away. What changes in the coronary tree or what changes in the area the stent is that eventually makes the risk of thrombosis go away? And why does it seem to be delayed in the drug-eluting stents? That's an excellent point to bring up. And how we've come to that answer is really based on both animal studies as well as human pathologic studies in patients who have had stent thrombosis. What has been described as the phenomenon is, again, these, these agents, the paclitaxel and the sirolimus, are designed to inhibit tissue ingrowth over the stent struts or the, the metallic parts of the stent that are located in the coronary artery. And so the benefit to that is that we don't actually have a lot of tissue ingrowth and restenosis. The downside to that is that that metallic stent is actually exposed to the inside lumen of the coronary artery for a greater period of time as compared to a bare metal stent, which would have a tissue ingrowth that would form and really protect that metal wall from the inside lumen of the artery to be recognized almost as a foreign body to promote clot in the artery. While the drugs are very useful in one arm, the side effect of the drug may have led to this, this difficulty with being a more thrombogenic situation. We also know that 
And we're not sure if this is the drug itself or the polymer that is attaching the drug to the stent, that there is a higher rate of inflammation or inflammatory cells when we look pathologically at drug-eluting stents compared to bare metal stents. And so a second hypothesis is that the inflammation itself is potentially one of the causes of the higher rate of stent thrombosis seen in the drug-eluting stents as well. And as far as answering your question is when does it go away, that's the interesting point. When we look thus far, the FDA is mandating that we're continuing to follow our drug-eluting stent patients even further and further beyond when they were enrolled in the trial because thus far we've seen up to four years of follow-up in studies that we are continuing to see, again, that very small increase but a slightly higher rate of stent thrombosis as compared to bare metal stents. So the question as to when does it stop with drug-eluting stents, the answer is that we don't yet know. So how can we prevent this thrombosis? What is the current recommendation for medical therapy to try to prevent thrombosis and hopefully allow enough healing so that the thrombosis risk will go away? The current recommendation is that the biggest thing that we can do to prevent stent thrombosis in our patients is, as far as medical therapy, is combined antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel or Plavix. When the studies were done evaluating the Texas stent and the Cypher stent, the original indications for the duration of that antiplatelet therapy were three months for the Cypher stent and six months for the Texas stent. Given this data that has emerged subsequently, there have been recommendations by the ACC, AHA, SCAI, as well as the European Society of Cardiology, that we prolong that dual antiplatelet therapy up to 12 months after patients have had a drug-eluting stent placed, as long as they do not have a high risk of bleeding or haven't had any bleeding event rates. So currently, the best medical thing that we can do is to continue patients on dual antiplatelet therapy and really ensure adequate compliance with the patients and ensure that other healthcare providers don't stop their antiplatelet therapy for non-urgent other clinical indications. Now, you mentioned that some of these meta-analyses have been suggesting that there is late and very late thrombosis, meaning that we're now getting thrombosis after one year. If a patient gets to the one-year mark and they're tolerating their aspirin and clopidogrel, would it be prudent to just continue on with this therapy? That's a great question, and that is a question that currently no one can answer to you, answer that for you based on any clinical trial data per se. And if you ask 10 interventionalists, I think you'd probably get a split of an answer on how to, how to answer that question. I think half of the interventionalists would say that if a patient isn't having any adverse side effects to continue the dual antiplatelet therapy, half would say that we don't have data that it is useful, and we do have data that prolonged antiplatelet therapy in some in patients is associated with excess bleeding, so potentially we should not continue it. I would say that I would probably answer that question based on it's important, again, to look at that patient and potentially use some of the other parameters we have to assess risk of stent thrombosis. Those include, again, patients with diabetes, patients with renal insufficiency, very long stents that are placed in very small coronary arteries. And those types of things would, in my situation, make me say that I would continue that Plavix therapy even in a patient who's gone up to the 12-month time period. But again, that's not based as of yet on any clinical trial data. Now, you also mentioned compliance, and I wonder how much of this late thrombosis is because patients just stop taking their clopidogrel over time. 
interesting. When we look at current registry data, even in registries in which current cipher registry in which patients were were counseled and adv- and advised to continue up to 12 months of Clavix, that when we looked at a year, only about 60%, 65% of those patients were actually on the Plavix at one-year time frame. Again, whether it was patient-derived factors, physician-derived factors that led to stopping, even in current days, we know that patients aren't always on their Plavix up to a year later. The compliance issue is, is actually quite important to discuss with our patients. I want to thank Dr. Elizabeth Holper, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing the controversy regarding drug-eluting stents and the risk of late and very late thrombosis. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.